Hello, and welcome to A Health Podacy. I'm your host, Alan Weil. The Medicare program has placed considerable emphasis on creating accountable care organizations, or ACOs, which are groups of healthcare providers that together take responsibility for providing necessary care and can reap financial rewards if they do so at lower than projected costs. Now, while the American Hospital Association reports that 56% of community hospitals participate in an ACO, ACOs have developed more slowly in rural than in urban areas. Observing that not all healthcare providers can afford the infrastructure costs necessary to make an accountable care model work, the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation, or CMMI, developed the ACO Investment Model, or AIM, which supports physicians, clinics, and smaller hospitals in their formation of ACOs. The AIM program evaluation has some interesting lessons for those seeking to promote accountable care. How to support ACO creation in less populated areas is the subject of today's health policy. I'm here with Matt Trombley, a senior associate at Apt Associates, Dr. Trombley and co-authors published a paper in the January 2022 issue of Health Affairs examining outcomes following implementation of the Medicare Shared Savings Program in 41 rural ACO investment model facilities. They found significant savings net of program costs, but also rapid exits from the program once providers were exposed to downside financial risks. We'll discuss these and more in today's episode. Dr. Trombley, welcome to the program. Thanks, Alan. It's a pleasure to be here. And thanks to my co-authors for letting me represent our group. Your paper addresses a really important topic. Accountable care is a priority for this administration as it has been for prior. Your paper focuses on the ACO investment model, or AIM, and how it played out, particularly in rural areas. Let's start with just an understanding of What's an ACO and why is it harder to create an ACO in a rural area than it might be in a more populated area? The goal of an ACO is to enable providers to take responsibility for a patient's health once they step outside the walls of their office. So I'm sure many providers would like to be able to provide this type of holistic care, but ultimately uh, the time and attention given to patients when they're not in the office typically is not reimbursed under the current Medicare fee-for-service system. So ACOs provide a mechanism for these providers to be able to uh, essentially get compensated for providing that type of care, which ultimately we hope benefits the patients. Um, now, uh, operating one of, the, uh, one of these ACOs to be able to provide this type of comprehensive care ultimately requires a lot of capabilities. It may require uh, hiring new staff, for example, to help patients navigate their different care uh, providers. It may require hiring uh, additional medical professionals to be on call during off hours and help triage patients, maybe get them the treatment they need outside of an emergency department in off hours. Uh, it may require new software investments to communicate across uh, different providers or even hardware investments to facilitate new things like telehealth. So uh, all these capabilities come at a cost. What we tend to see is that providers in more densely populated areas naturally have the scale that facilitates either uh, sort of already possessing some of these capabilities 
but also making it easier to uh, afford the investment in them. Uh, ultimately, you have to bear some initial costs to build these capabilities to succeed in the model. So we're talking about a model of care here that is not sort of supported by traditional fee-for-service payment methods. And we're asking care systems to invest in services and systems that just didn't exist before. The AIM program, the, it's right there in the name, the ACO investment model, it included investment funds. That's different than the traditional approach that the Medicare program has taken to forming ACOs. You, you hinted at this a moment ago, but what were those funds in AIM and how did they think of it differently for these providers than they do for others who might have to make these sorts of investments? That's a great question. So uh, ultimately, for the reasons described above, a lot of rural providers and under uh, providers in under-resourced areas tend to uh, have a harder time making these investments. So AIM was designed specifically to uh, get them access to the resources necessary to build those capabilities and succeed in the model. So AIM delivered a large influx of cash up front, a $250,000 initial investment. Uh, plus a variable payment based on the number of enrolled beneficiaries all up front. And then for the first two of the three years of the model, they received monthly payments per beneficiary enrolled to help sustain the model through the first couple of years while they were waiting to earn back some of those shared savings. And this is different from how what they expected from ACOs in other areas? That's correct. So a uh, typical ACO is pretty much on the hook to uh, you know come to CMS and say, we want to form an ACO. Uh, and they fill out the application, and that's that. There's usually uh, very, uh, you know, a lot less uh, support provided by CMS to get those ACOs off the ground. And like all projects out of the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation, there's an evaluation. You were involved in that. Um, I know you learned a lot from it. Your paper goes beyond that, but let's start with the primary results out of that evaluation. What what did you learn? Sure. So I think the main thing our team learned is that the model worked. Um, so the, f- the first goal of the model was essentially to, to get these ACOs off the ground. We uh, saw, as you mentioned, 41 uh, ACOs formed in predominantly rural areas. Now, we can't definitively prove with the data we have that those ACOs would never have come into being without these funds. But what we saw was a time when there were only roughly 400 ACOs in the whole country we saw 40 at one time in these rural areas where there'd really been very little penetration before. Uh, and we saw looking at the types of beneficiaries who were enrolled uh, were much more likely to live in rural areas, uh, about 70% versus 20% in the non-AIM ACOs at the same time. And these beneficiaries were also twice as likely to live in a primary care health professional shortage area. Uh, say a little bit more about uh, professional shortages, because we often think of rural distance and uh, access barriers, but uh, provider shortages are another element. Can you just uh, explain that concept in a little more detail? Sure. So um, CMS keeps a list of essentially zip codes that are designated as these health professional shortage areas. And these are places where there simply aren't enough doctors to, to uh, meet the demand. Uh, and so these tend to fall in rural areas where there's less density to try to build up a practice and get the volume needed to, to sustain a practice. Uh, as you said, people have to travel long distances to, to get the care they need. And so these are the kind of places where um, CMS is really trying to build out value-based care and help bring the forefront of healthcare to these folks. 
So one of the goals of ACOs, as the name implies, accountability to, and you described some services and supports that people get when they're cared for in an ACO model that they might not have in fee-for-service. But there's a financial angle to all of this. Medicare is also looking to save money. What'd you learn on the dollar side? So uh, that, I think, was one of the, the more exciting findings of uh, the evaluation was ultimately the model ended up saving over $380 million net of all of not only the investment funds, but the shared savings bonuses paid out to the ACOs over the three years of the model. So uh, CMS uh, made back its investment and then some. And uh, the way that they uh, primarily achieved these savings was, as you would expect, by uh, sort of reducing these big ticket items, reducing hospitalizations, readmissions, uh, visits to the emergency department. And we saw all of this with no uptick in mortality. Uh, we looked at patient uh, reported measures of uh, and caregiver reported measures of quality and access did not see any adverse effects there. So uh, not only did we see uh, some savings, but, you know, we see people being kept out of the hospital uh, that, you know, show that it was, they really was uh, preventable care, uh, you know, with no adverse consequences. We see that as a huge win on the quality ledger, uh, you know, helping keep keeping people in their homes where they want to be. So if you just start with the basic principle that uh, Medicare fee-for-service is the platform and the move to accountable care creates possibilities for better coordination, reduction of unnecessary care. And if you do it right, you could save a few dollars and patients uh, do better and don't get care that they don't need. It all sounds like uh, this is a quite successful program. There are some complications here as well about uh, what the limitations of the model are and what happens as it starts to evolve. Uh, I'll talk with you about those after we take a short break. The innovative online Master of Science in Health Policy and Law from UCSF and UC Law San Francisco merges study in health policy and law and makes it possible for you to work while pursuing your degree. Even better, you'll be able to employ your new knowledge to your career in real time. Prepare to lead the future of health. Apply by the March 31st priority deadline to join the fall 2024 class. Learn more at uclawsf.edu forward slash HPL. Are you a healthcare professional working in the Medicare Advantage space? Rise National is the event for you. Rise National will bring over 1,600 attendees safely together in Nashville this March for face-to-face -face networking, benchmarking, regulatory updates, digital healthcare delivery trends, and technology advancements. Visit www.risenational.com and use code JOIN100 to save $100 on registration today. Racism is a fundamental cause of health disparities for racial and ethnic minority groups. And yet racism, especially structural racism, remains understudied in healthcare research. The February issue of Health Affairs focuses on racism and health and will cover topics such as how racism damages health, measuring the health impacts of structural racism, and racial bias in digital health. Check the show notes to order your copy today. And we're back. I'm speaking with Dr. Matt Trombley about a paper published in the January 2022 issue of Health Affairs about the ACO investment model. Before the break, we talked really about how successful this program has been, but it's hard to 
look at that without also looking at some of the shortcomings. So let's go to those. The first one that I want to focus on is the shift to downside risk. Um, So explain to us how the program was designed at the outset, what the change was, and how that fits into the broader approach that uh, CMS has taken to ACOs and risk. So uh, to begin with, the ACO investment model was a three-year agreement period, and that was the length of the entire model. And during that period, they only faced uh, what's called upside risk, which means if they help Medicare save money, uh, they get to share in those savings. But if costs go up, they are not liable for any of those losses to Medicare. Uh, So uh, sort of push across the board in these value-based payment models is a move for providers to what's called downside risk, where if costs go up, they have to pay some of those losses back to Medicare. And so uh, with ACOs in particular, 2019, which was the year immediately after uh, the end of AIM, when they had to make their uh, renewal decisions, there was a redesign to the model where uh, five-year agreement periods were put in place that guaranteed at least several years under downside risk. You know, this was seen uh, as a large negative by many of the providers. And ultimately, what we saw is that over two-thirds of the AIM ACOs chose not to uh, re-up when given the opportunity to do so. So from the outside, this is a curious finding, and I want to get some insight from you. You just told us that the program saved a significant amount of money, which means that the early experience from these ACOs in the aggregate has to have been quite positive. They were beating their benchmarks. Now you say to them, well, if you don't do so well, you're going to pay, but you've been doing pretty well. So what's going on here? Why do they drop out? Well, uh, so, I mean, their reason for dropping out was they did not want to um, face that downside risk. And I think one thing that's important to keep in mind is what our evaluation measures as savings is not exactly what uh, CMS uh, measures as savings against their benchmarks. So the methodologies differ a little bit. We really uh, try to get as precise as possible as what would have happened to these exact patients at these exact providers in the absence of AIM and track savings against them. And so uh, we think that provides a little bit more precise measure of savings that may not match exactly uh, what, what CMS sees on the ground. Uh, within- so, so, sorry to interrupt, but this is such an important element to uh, ACO design, and it's, it's a little complicated, so I'm going to just slow down and ask you to take it apart. That the, that the way CMS approaches whether you share in the savings measures the savings against a benchmark, and your analytic methods measure the savings against a theoretical what it would have cost had the program not been there. Why aren't those two the same thing? So I guess it's just different ways of approaching the question. I think um, you know we've seen an evolution in the benchmarking methodology over time that is getting closer. I think to sort of capturing that pure, you know, hypothetical of what would have happened. But ultimately, uh, I'm not sure I have a good answer for that question. I think they're just we're approaching the question from from slightly different vantage points. That's a totally reasonable answer, actually, and it suggests that the providers who are making a decision here are nervous about the sustainability of their approach relative to how CMS is looking at what the benchmark is. Is that a fair, that would be a reason to withdraw? That's correct. Yep. You describe in the paper this tension between capturing savings and, uh, and reinvesting them, if you will. Um, 
Can you explain that? I think it's a very, again, it's another one of these important design features in a program as large as Medicare, where, of course, the government representing the taxpayer is trying to minimize its overall spending. Providers are being asked to take some risk. And by the the likes of this model, with your evaluation, it seems like they did a good job doing that. But what do you do with that story in terms of allocating resources is not a technical question. It's really a political one. Can, can you give me some insight into what's at stake and what, what it means to make a distinction between how much is saved and how much is uh, returned to providers? Sure. So as you said, uh, you know, ultimately, CMS is trying to be good stewards of the Medicare trust fund and not spend money on unnecessary care. Um, when the unnecessary care is avoided, they want to try to pocket some of that savings uh, to help continue to provide great care for beneficiaries. Uh, but as you said, uh, that requires providing some incentive for the providers to go out there and find those savings in the first place. You not only need to provide the potential reward, but also just cover the costs of doing it in the first place. As we mentioned at, at the top of this conversation, uh, you know, there's a lot that goes into providing this level of care. And so there has to be a balance uh, found between um, these the rewards to the providers and then what is retained uh, by Medicare. I guess my question is, that's, that's the structural challenge. So where do you come out on this? And particularly, I'm thinking of the whole premise of the AIM model as distinct from the broader ACO endeavor is that the cost structure is different in rural areas. Maybe the risk structure is different as well. So do you think about, based on your work here and your evaluation, how what's the right framework for allocating those savings? Well, I think uh, you know our research clearly shows that if you swing the pendulum too far one way, it can in fact be counterproductive. So we saw that um, 27 out of the 41 AMACOs left uh, when facing downside risk. Now, one of the uh, new elements of uh, our more recent research beyond the evaluation that you alluded to earlier is the fact that those ACOs that left had achieved just as much savings per beneficiary as those that stayed. So you look at perhaps uh, Medicare was able to get a little bit of extra from those 14 that stayed, but how much did they give up with the 27 that left? Ultimately, you know, striking uh, the wrong balance in this case can, can ultimately uh, go against the goals that you're trying to achieve. And so I think when you look at these type of rural areas that may be uh, less able to withstand downside risk, at least uh, for a time, uh, you know, there, there may be a need for a different approach. And that's just getting at the dollars and cents. What about the care and the quality and the access and those elements? Any sense of change in those areas? That is another one of the challenges of trying to design models for these particular areas, something that CMMI has been doing uh, you know, pretty much since the beginning of, of uh, the Affordable Care Act, is uh, you know, ultimately a lot of the providers, particularly hospitals in these rural and under-resourced areas, uh, are operating on low uh, financial margins. They uh, are operating as safety net providers, perhaps the only game in town for receiving care. And so when they are uh, partnering either as part of the ACO or just working with uh, ACO providers to keep people out of their doors, uh, keeping them healthy, uh, if they do not share in uh, the financial benefits to CMS of doing so, 
uh, that is potentially an existential risk to them. Uh, a lot of these hospitals, uh, there's been a lot of documented closures in rural areas. Uh, these can further uh, reduce access and therefore exacerbate existing disparities. You know, your last comment reminds me that the AIM model provided investments uh, not just to the smaller hospitals, but to clinics and physician practices. I wonder if there's anything about including those non-hospital-based providers in the model that is a lesson that you would also try to carry. Well, I think um, you know it demonstrates that these models can be successful with those types of providers. So one of the design elements of AIM was that the participants couldn't be owned by a health system. They uh, could only partner with either critical access hospitals or hospitals with fewer than 100 beds. So uh, ultimately, it was comprised of independent physician practices and then independent clinics like rural health clinics and federally qualified uh, health centers. So uh, being able to bring these providers under that umbrella is a means to extend this type of value-based care to places where it hadn't been before. And so the original model did succeed in um, getting that type of engagement in these areas. The question now is how to sustain it in the longer term. So the cynical view, and I've heard this expressed by people across party lines, is sure, you give money with no risk to a bunch of health providers and they do good things with it and nothing bad happens. But the moment you tell them, uh, by the way, if it doesn't turn out so well, you might lose some dollars, they leave. Uh, that's a that's sort of a it's too easy a story to tell. And that if you're serious about health system transformation, you have to build downside risk into these models. And I and I've I've heard that expressed that view expressed quite definitively by by many. I wonder if your sense here is either that uh, that's maybe not true, or if your sense is that the scale of downside risk needs to be uh, calibrated differently in these areas, or the approach to downside risk needs to be done differently, or the upfront investment needs to be structured differently. I just wonder, instead of thinking of this as black and white, you either take downside risk or you don't. Do you come away with a nuanced view of how to make that work? Well, I think it is definitely something for policymakers to consider is do they want a one-size-fits-all approach or, or can we do a better job of trying to, to come alongside these providers? Um, we, we, I think this model clearly demonstrated and our results show uh, that we can engage providers in these areas. They can then keep people out of the hospital and save money. The, the question then is how to design the incentives so that they stick around long enough to keep reaping the benefits and, and providing those benefits to the patients. So I think, um, you know, our results show uh, sustained impacts over three years, uh, very consistent impacts over three years under just uh, upside only risk. So I think uh, we haven't reached the limit of what can be achieved under one-sided risk in terms of time. And then the question is just uh, if, if policymakers think it is necessary to eventually reach that downside uh, risk, how, how can we maybe provide more of a glide path to get there for uh, providers in certain areas or provide them with other ways to mitigate that risk? So I don't know if this last question will be too similar to the one before that you feel like you don't have anything more to add, but I'm going to ask it anyway, which is sure. uh, I've now had on a number of our uh, programs, some of the senior officials at CMS, and there is clearly a strong commitment to having 
all or nearly all of the people on both Medicare and Medicaid in some sort of what they call an accountable arrangement. It doesn't have to be an ACO. So thinking broadly about this study, but also your research and knowledge of the field in general, if you were to sit down with the CMS administrator and say, I appreciate that you want everyone in an accountable model. Here are some things I hope you keep in mind as you do it so that you're most likely to be successful. What would be the next paragraph or two out of your mouth? That's a great question. Um, so I think it would just be uh, you know, keeping in mind the need for flexibility and the fact that our goals may need to be different in different areas. So I think uh, CMS is always about improving quality, but they're also always about trying to save money. Uh, there may be areas where, um, you know, just breaking even is a win if we can uh, find a way to sustain care there and, and bring these types of value-based payment models to those individuals. Um, but, you know, we work very closely with the folks at CMS and we see they're hard at work every day uh, developing new models. Uh, we know that the successor model to the ACO investment model is actually coming out next year. We're really excited to see what kind of engagement there is with that. You know, I think CMI is continuing to work hard and, uh, you know, we'll keep uh, telling them how they're doing so that they can make course corrections as needed. Well, Dr. Trombley, it's been great uh, speaking with you. Your work is in an area that is right at the center of health policy right now, but also gets off to the side of what is often sort of the mainstream thinking about ACOs in urban areas with multiple competing providers aligning themselves in different ways. And uh, your paper and this conversation is a reminder that these incentives play out very differently depending on where you are. And it's great to uh, have you bring the evidence as well as the analysis to that topic uh, so that we can assure that the benefits of these models are uh, experienced by people all over the country and not just those in urban or competitive markets. Um, thank you so much for the paper and for being my guest on Health Policy. This has been my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, I hope you'll tell a friend about a health policy. Health Policy is produced by Health Affairs, the leading journal for health policy research. The team behind the show includes Patty Sweet, Jeff Byers, Julia Vivolo, Sarah Kolk, and Sue Ducat. Like the show? Subscribe to A Health Policy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Thanks for listening, and have a great morning, day, or evening.